Sunday, March the 5th. Welcome to this Burlington Audio Podcast. We hope you will be encouraged and inspired in your faith as you listen to this message. We'd love to hear what you think. Please be in touch with us through the website. More information and many more podcasts are all at burlingtonbaptist.org.uk. Thanks for listening. Uh, my name's Simon, if you don't know, and uh, it's my pleasure to lead the team here, and it's good to uh, welcome you and add my welcome to Rich's here this morning. We're starting a brand new uh, series today entitled Walking with God. Uh, we'll focus around this for the next four weeks. We'll take a break around Easter and then uh, pick up some different posture, probably in the same ballpark after uh, Easter. The kind of subheading is quite deliberate through all of life's terrains. Walking with God, not just some of the journey, but all of the journey. And as we come this morning, we're conscious that we've all walked through different kinds of terrains. There have been times in our lives when the journey has been very steep and arduous. There have been times in the journey when it's been downhill and quite frivolous and joy-filled. There have been times in the journey when it's been slow and perhaps fearful and uncertain about where we will place our next step. What does it mean to walk with God through it all? And I guess we'll all understand the reality that we face, that we kind of might lean into God at certain times and in certain moments, but not at others. We walk with God some of the time, but not all of the time. Because it's easy for us to get stuck in the way that we relate to God. We were talking a little bit about that when it comes to uh, our kind of reading Scripture a few weeks ago, which is why I was encouraging you to kind of shake it up a little bit, read Scripture differently, just uh, mess with it a little bit, because it will help you connect with God in a different kind of way. So what does it mean to be able to walk with God through all of life's terrains, all of the different uh, paths, and sometimes those moments when there doesn't seem to be a path at all? There are, of course, typical ways that we relate to God. One of the dominant ways that perhaps depending on your churchmanship or your upbringing or your background, one of the ways that you might typically relate to God is that God is the kind of record keeper. And uh, you need to do enough to keep the record keeper off your back. You need to do enough to make sure that you're keeping uh, at bay whatever that black mark, that difficult kind of report might end up being. And your relationship with God is about, can I do enough to keep all of that at bay? Uh, Another kind of posture that we might have with our relationship with God is the kind of slot machine. I, I need something today from God. So if I put this into the relationship, if I do this, if I act in this way, will I get this coming out of the slot machine? Anyone know what I'm talking about? If I behave or do or achieve, can I therefore expect the gold star or the silver ticket or whatever it might be to come back out for me, whatever it is I think that I desire or I think that I, that I want? Other ways we relate to God perhaps is the, is the, I was going to say the fourth, but maybe the first emergency service. 
We suddenly cry out to God in those moments when we face an emergency, we face a difficulty, we face something we don't know what to do with or how to respond, and suddenly we're uh, turning back to God in a way that perhaps we haven't related to him in recent days. All of those things, and there are probably very many other nuances around those kind of descriptions, All of those have turned our relationship with God into something functional or utilitarian. It's about what I get out of the relationship. It's about what needs get met. It's a push and pull rather than the relationship itself. In contrast, the scriptures open with this idea of us walking with God. Of us kind of being in this uh, walk, this dance, this rhythm, this relationship from which and for which everything flows and makes sense. It's an ancient idea. We've been uh, uh, thinking a lot, haven't we, about that verse in Genesis chapter 3 where the we've just heard about mankind falling and the world is kind of uh, beginning to, to crumble, the great fall, they call it. And yet God comes walking to Adam and Eve in the garden because that's God's heart. God who hasn't changed, that's his desire, is to walk with us and alongside us. And so even in the midst of it all falling apart you get a reminder of how it was always meant to be. That God would come, that we might walk with him and alongside him. And you know in Hebrew that you're always looking for the treasure, the little nugget of treasure. So Hebrew writing is often like, here's a whole pile of sand, and if you dig your way through the sand, suddenly in the the middle of it you'll find a treasure. You don't have to go very far before you find a treasure. So Genesis chapter 3 talks about the fall and you get this treasure of God walking in the garden. Then you get Cain and Abel and if we fall out with God, we'll fall out with one another and everything appears to be going from bad to worse. But then in Genesis chapter 5, which you would easily overlook because it's just a list of names, a genealogy that he lived so long and he lived so long and he lived a bit longer and he didn't live quite so long. But right in the middle of Genesis chapter 5 is another nugget. And if you're reading Hebrew and looking for the nuggets, looking for the treasure, suddenly it stands out. Because in the middle of Genesis chapter 5, we read about Enoch in verse 24. What does it say about Enoch? He walked faithfully with God. And then he was no more because God took him away. And so you get a glimpse, even in the midst of it all going wrong, even in the middle of it all falling apart, you get a glimpse of how it was meant to be. You get this insight as to what was intended, that even now it's possible for what was lost to begin to be reclaimed. And Enoch walks with God, so closely with God, that apparently he doesn't even die, but ends up walking right into heaven. That would be a bit of a shock for anybody, wouldn't it? You're walking down Burlington Road, you take a left-hand turn, and suddenly you're in heaven. But that's what happened to Enoch as he walked with God. And can you see how the scriptures are painting this picture? But in the midst of what we might think about and concentrate on, about it all being broken and all falling apart, there is this right the way back, an invitation, a glimpse, something that's inspiring 
and inviting that is open to us. A fresh glimpse of our design. I guess then it's not lost on us, is it, that Abraham is invited to go for a walk. He's invited to leave one place and go for a walk with God. It's not lost on us that Joseph, the next big character in Genesis, he also went not so much for a walk, but he certainly went on a journey and he discovered that the Lord was with him at each and every turn of that journey. And so as you go through the Old Testament, you get this very powerful unfolding idea that God wants to walk with us. We had some examples of that last week, didn't we, in the wilderness with the cloud and the fire and then his presence right in the middle. That verse that Simon quoted in uh, the worship time from Psalm 84, talking about pilgrimage. What was the whole, what was the whole nuance, the whole idea around pilgrimage? It was to walk with God and towards God. They would walk up to Zion where figuratively, metaphorically they would meet with God, but they would walk with Him along the way. And, and that's, uh, in a sense, uh, the, the, the big story of what God calls us to, to walk with Him and ultimately to be walking Uh, towards him and there's great promise isn't there that as we walk with God that there'll be riches and wealth and and fruitfulness even in the barren uh, places as they pass through the valley they make it a place of springs the autumn rains also cover it with pools because the walking with God is the recapturing of that which was lost. And as we begin to recapture that which was lost, that which is broken and fallen and messed, begins to show signs of hope and restoration, walking with God. So thinking about those postures that we might have, the slot machine, the emergency kind of services, the uh, uh, all of that kind of stuff, how, how do you relate to God? If you had to describe your relationship with God, what word would you use? What word would you use? Have a little chat with the person next to you or around you. What word would you use? Okay, hold those thoughts for a few moments. Paul writes a curious thing in the New Testament. When he writes in the book of Philippians about not being anxious about stuff, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Now, if you were to do soap on this verse 
uh, and begin to think about what might strike you and what questions you might ask. You, there's a whole wealth of things to, to, to dig yourself into. Do not be anxious implies that there's a choice. Maybe you feel that there isn't a choice. I'm anxious and I don't have any control over that. And that raises a second question about how we respond to what the scriptures say. Do we reinterpret reinterpret the scriptures in the light of our own experience or do we try and understand what the scripture is saying in order to bring our experience into line with what the bible uh says so you might be digging into that you might pick up that theme again of every situation all of life's terrain paul is talking about in every situation in every circumstance and you find yourself thinking about paul being in prison how can he be in prison be thinking about what thanksgiving there is and what and so on and so forth so you get into all of that but let's leave that to one side just for a moment but a quick illustration about how you might dig into uh, a scripture and then you might come to this bit by prayer and petition prayer and petition when you say your prayers I suspect they are almost always petition so if I was to say to you have you said your prayers you would probably think about the things that you're asking God for. Are you with me? And you've probably got a list. It's either in your head, you've probably got it written down. There's nothing wrong with that at all. And there are probably things on that list that have been there for a long time. They are petitions. You are asking God for something. And when we think about our prayer lives, we think about the things that we're asking God for. And probably we go quite quickly to the things that we're asking God for that he hasn't answered yet, or at least not in the way that we want him to. And that takes us around a kind of cycle of uh, sometimes being disappointed with prayer. And, uh, and then we have to get back to our kind of list with a fresh level of enthusiasm when we go around that hope despair cycle uh, again and again, and perhaps sometimes too many, too many times. So what's Paul on about when he says there's this whole thing called prayer, and then there's petitions? If your prayer is petitions, what on earth is Paul talking about when he talks about prayer? You see what's going on here? We're invited to explore something different. Paul is saying there is something different to prayer than the things that we are asking God for. It's not that those are wrong and uh, that those are absolutely right and legitimate. A good father loves to hear the requests of his children and God is exactly the same. So there's nothing wrong or bad about that. I'm simply saying Paul illuminates the fact that there's this whole thing called prayer and then there's this thing called petitions. So what do we make of that? What if prayer is the word for our connection with God and petitions is just one expression of that where we are asking God for something? What if prayer is about your walk with God in the everyday and your petitions are the things that you might ask him as part of that walk? Because obviously in our human interactions, our relationships are much more and much deeper than the things that we ask for. When your kids only relate to you on the basis of what they want, you feel a little bit deflated. Ah, they're calling me. Can I have some money? Oh. Because we know that there is so much more. There is a context for a request for a petition, and that context is the depth and the wideness and the breadth of the relationship. And so there's this massive moment 
at the end of Jesus' life, where he kind of lifts the veil on something that's been there all the time, but he articulates it so sharply that it's almost staggering to read. But of course, we're familiar with it, so we gloss over it without giving it much of much uh, thought. And this moment, in a sense, has been building all the way through the scriptures. And Jesus just says something, as I said, that's been there all the time. But he makes it so clear in those last moments here on earth, when we get the insight into that conversation that he's having with his father that Margaret read to us. But before we get to that, we need to understand a little bit of the journey and and why it doesn't perhaps impact us in the way that it could or it should. Genesis chapter 1 talks about God creating. It's very simple. In the beginning, God, one person, created the world. That's, That's 101, isn't it? One God. And that's why we're a monotheistic, a one God religion, uh, separate from all the other religions, uh, certainly the Old Testament would talk about, and we would still say that today, uh, of religions that worship many gods. There is one God who demands our allegiance, our worship, one God that we should serve all of our days. But then just a few verses later, we get this weirdness, don't we? This one God then says, let us. And another little bit of Hebrew, there's a kind of singular, there's a plural meaning two, and there's a plural meaning more than two, and this is a plural meaning more than, uh, more than two. So, so, so it, somehow this one God consists of more than one. And, and we can't figure that out. And if you could figure that out, then you would be God. And that would be a worrying thing for all of us. So the fact that you can't figure it out is perfectly reasonable and we should all be very comfortable with it. The problem is with human beings is that we want to figure it out and we want to put it in a box and understand it because we know that if we can put it in a box and understand it, then we can control it and we feel happier about the things that we can control. And so there were lots of theological discussions about what is it? Is it one or is it three? And because of our determination to understand it and put it in a box, people would go one of two different ways. You either got really excited about it being one and lost something of the sense of it being three, or you got really excited about it being three and you lost something about the sense of it being one. And it's led to all kinds of both confusion and slight uh, uh, disorientation and sometimes big disorientation and huge heresy. Typically, broadly speaking, Augustine in the 4th century kind of went, we've really got a stick hold of God being one. And his perspective dominated Western Christianity, of which we are a part. There were other people, like the early Cappadocian fathers, who said, if you do that, you'll totally miss the point about God being three. And if you miss the point about God being three, you will miss all kinds of things that are true about God. And so the Eastern Christianity was much more pluralistic in its development of the Trinity and so on. And so there was this kind of division and we are products in a certain sense of that division. And you can see why it's important, can't you? Because if you believe in one God, then it gives support for one leader and one dictator and one overall and all of that. One person in charge. If you, if you come over here, it develops the whole idea of team and collaboration and it takes more than one to create the whole. This is about, I'm on my own and I'm individualistic. I'm pushing the point now. This is much more, I'm in relationship and I'm collaborative. 
So which is right? Well, they're both right, aren't they? Of course. But in our desire to understand it, to put it in a box, we've gone one way or the other, and we've lost a shed load of stuff in between. And one of the things for us in our tradition is to recapture the Trinity, which we've been anxious about because we think that it challenges the monotheistic religion of which we know we are a part. So I digress a little bit, but you can see why it's important. The Bible is very Trinitarian. And it's easy for us to miss it because we come to it with our lens. Of course we know about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But we don't allow the reality of that truth to touch us at a deep and a core level. Just think about it with me for a moment. Relationship is at the heart of the whole thing. Relationship is at the heart of the whole thing. Let us make mankind in our image. And as we move through the story of the scriptures, we see the whole story being told in relational terms. We don't see God at work in the world, but we see a Trinitarian God at work in the world. And that gets accelerated, fast-tracked, as you get into the New Testament. Because the New Testament, of course, tells the story of what? Of a father sending a son. For God so loved that he gave his one and only son. It says the father sent the son, verse 17 of John chapter 3, into the world. There was a father sending a son. This was, this was not just God doing something. This was a father doing something with his son. And there's a difference to that. God doing something on his own is very different to a father sending a son. One is relationship and cooperative and collaborative. One is individualistic. Do you see the difference? One is about relationship primarily that works its way out in action and activity. The other is about someone doing something unilaterally. A son then does the father's work. Jesus says this again and again. In fact, they didn't understand it. In fact, they got mad with him because he kept saying it. He says, look, actually, when you want to understand what I'm doing, I'm just simply doing what the father's work. I'm simply doing what the father's saying. I'm in such relationship with him that if you've seen what I do, then you understand what the father is doing because we're in this together. You can't separate us out. This is what's going on. Everything I do comes out of, as is inspired by, is constructed by this relationship. Even in the most difficult of times, the most difficult of times, the relationship remained paramount. What's the best example of that? There was a garden called Gethsemane. And it was the night before Jesus was to be crucified. And he was aware of the horror of it. And what do we understand happened in those moments? There's this, and we get this, this insight again, don't we, into the conversation that's going on, the, the depth of relation. Every key moment, baptism, transfiguration, uh, Garden of Gethsemane, the cross, the resurrection, all of it is, is told to us in relational terms. And so there in the Garden of Gethsemane, we get this uh, insight into the reality of what's happening. A son is surrendering to the Father, not my will, but yours be done. It, this is a massive moment. Because it's like relationship trumps everything. 
It's like everything, even the toughest of stuff, was flowing out of relationship. And of course, Jesus didn't raise himself either, did it? The Bible says that God raised him from the dead. God the Father raises him from the dead. And that, of course, isn't the end because there was going to be a brand new season called the church uh, where the Spirit would be sent. And so we uh, read of the Father and the Son sending the Spirit. When the Counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. It's all relationship. So if you take that relationship away, there is no story of Jesus and the Gospels. That's how fundamental it is, how, how deeply it's weaved into the tapestry of everything that took place. So just for a moment, what has struck you about the way I presented the story of the Gospels just then? When you articulate what you're thinking to someone near you. So at the heart of God, at the heart of the universe, when you strip it all away, what do you get at the very core? What's always been, always existed, is this God in community. Perfect, unbroken, unblemished, except for that unique occasion when? Of the cross. And that, in so many ways, was the agony of the cross. Jesus didn't cry out about the pain of the, the, the thorn of crowns or the, the nails or the spear, whatever. He didn't cry out about that. He ultimately cried out about the God that he felt abandoned by. Because that was a relationship that had always existed in eternity. And always will exist. But for those moments, he became separated from God that we might never be. Now, that's an amazing truth, isn't it? This unbroken relationship. And at the heart of this unbroken relationship is unconditional love. We know that God is love. And it's not static and theoretical, but it's dynamic and it's active. And we see it worked out through the life and ministry of Jesus and now through the life of the Holy Spirit. Then you get this amazing insight from Jesus, who at the end of his ministry is praying. 
And he says, my prayer is not for them alone, for the 12 disciples or 11 that there were then. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Who's he praying for? Us. That all of them may be one, Father. Notice where this oneness comes from, though. That all of them may be one, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us. In us. Think about what that means for a moment. That that relationship that has always existed at the heart of the universe, that perfect, unblemished, unbroken relationship is open and inviting you in. That's what it means. That's what it means. You are invited to come in that close and that deeply And that intimately into the very heart of who God is. It's the great invitation into the heart of God. The deepest, most secure, most satisfying, most fulfilling, utterly loving relationship. And you are invited to join in. And so theologians talk about the open trinity because it's not like father and son are, are a closed shop and they're standing in a circle with their arms all facing inwards and no one's invited in. No, no, no. This is a, this is a trinity that is open and it's beckoning you. It's calling you. In fact, more than that, as Sai was saying in the, in the worship, not only is it a trinity that's standing beckoning you and calling you, it's a trinity that actually has come towards you. Jesus came towards us. Jesus sends his spirit now towards us that comes seeking us and searching us. Son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And so God is actively not only opening himself up to invite us in, but he's chasing after us, racing after us, calling after us, walking in the cool of the day for us. Then the world will know that you sent me and you have loved them even as, uh, even as you have loved, uh, sorry, even as you have loved me. And, and we often think about that verse as, as, as the kind of missional thing. Then the world will know. And of course the world will know. If we get this right, the world will know. But the real reality here is that the love that Father, Son and Holy Spirit share is a love into which you and I are invited. And and suddenly we're a long, long way from our lists and our petitions, aren't we? We're suddenly into a whole different frame of reference. A whole different kind of invitation. And maybe that if we could grasp this invitation and step into what we are invited to here, some of that stuff might make a bit more sense for us. What does it mean to walk with God? It means to go yes, yes, yes to being in that relationship. And we're beginning to glimpse maybe what Paul meant when he said, hey, there's prayer and there's petitions. You know, that's why even though I'm in prison, I'm not anxious about anything because ultimately that relationship that is at the heart of the universe, you know what? I'm right in. 
I'm rooted in that. I'm secure in that. My foundations are in that. That cannot be shaken. That is mine because I've been invited in. Some of you will, will, will know that occasionally kids can be cantankerous and angry and frustrating and, you know, you'll have observed it in other families, I suspect, that that's what kids can be like. And you can feel sorry sometimes for the parent in the supermarket who clearly has had a long day by 9.30 in the morning and everyone's cross and angry with everybody. And that particular parent has probably tried everything in their toolkit to soothe that particular child. There have been promises of treats and there have been threats of punishment. All in the one sentence, probably, when parents uh, lose it a little. And then there's that reminder of how human interaction really works. And the child is scooped up in the parent's arms. And the child is held while the parent sings. It doesn't matter whether you're in tune or out of tune. But there's something in that moment that says, bigger than all of this, I love you and we belong to each other. And the most cantankerous of children get calmed in that moment. And the odd parent gets calm too. doesn't work quite so well when they're 16, but when they're younger, it's a recommended strategy. The Bible talks about God doing that with us, doesn't it, in that verse in Zephaniah that we know. About God being powerful to save us. And how does he save us? How does he rescue us? By reminding us that he takes great delight and by singing over us. By gathering us in his arms and singing over us. What would it mean this week for us to begin to respond afresh to this invitation to enter fully into the relationship Father, Son and Holy Spirit? Maybe before you do anything else. Before you read your Bible, before you come to your petitions, before you do X, Y, and Z, what would it look like to spend a few minutes inviting God to draw us up and to begin to sing over us? As our way of saying, hey, I want, I, I'm saying yes. I, I, I want this. I, I, I'm coming. I'm coming not with all my lists and my demands, but I'm coming back to this relationship that is at the heart of the whole thing. This is the invitation for us all. And there is a promise that he will take great delight in you. That he will quieten you with his love. And he will rejoice over you with singing. Let's be quiet for a moment. I'd love you just to, in your mind's eye, in your spirit, open the eyes of our hearts, the Bible prays, with your, with your heart eyes, to see God 
in those Trinitarian terms. Maybe you've concentrated sometimes on God the Father and in different types of praying you think about praying to Jesus. Sometimes you think about maybe the Holy Spirit. But just think about, think about the whole lot, as it were. Think about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Think about the love that they share, unbroken, unblemished. Think about the beauty, the vitality. Think about the intoxicating presence of God that there must be in the midst of that. Imagine the fullness of God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit filling Just the square meter where you're sitting right now. And I want you to listen and to watch as he invites you in. Let him quiet you with his love. What might it mean for him to begin to sing over you, calling you closer? Calling you in. Just quietly in your spirit say, yes, I'm coming. I'm coming close.